I know the Sega CD different is much version, or is much version. I know the Sega CD. I'm so keeping that outtake, by the way. Radio Drone. Where else would you be on a Thursday night except here with me, Josh Hadley, as well as Cecil the T-Robot? Yes, and apparently I'm boring. Oh, let it go. (laughs) And Alex won't be joining us this week. Maybe he'll be back next week, not sure. But Cecil, can the robot recite the Adam and Eve promo? Uh, sure. Uh, if you go to adamandeve.com and enter the promo code DROME, you'll get three free DVDs, a uh, free mystery gift, um, a bunch of other things that I can't remember. Robots the don't my... say um. <laughs> Robots can be programmed to say um. Go they, to AdamandEve.com, use the promo code DROME, and you get three free DVDs, 50% off of a single item, free U.S. shipping, and a free mystery gift for using the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. Yes, what he said. Yes, what what, what he said. I want to talk about an interesting aspect of movies that most people don't think of. Now, we've all bitched numerous times about how, oh, that book being turned into a movie sucked, that video game being turned into a movie sucked, blah, 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 when some other medium gets turned into a movie. What happens, though, when a movie gets turned into some other medium? For example, novelizations. Were you a big ingester of novelizations, Cecil? Here and there. There were certain movies where I picked up the novelization because they expanded on certain things or they were a little bit closer to the original script, but not not too, too much. Well, novelizations obviously don't have as large of a part nowadays as, you know, they used to pre-internet and hell, pre-home video, because that's when novelization started to get really big was you saw the movie in the theater. If you want to re-experience it, there's no video. It's not going to show up on TV. This is pre-cable even. It's not going to show up on TV for a year, year and a half, and then it'll be censored because it'll be on a UHF station but the novelization is out there, so you can re-experience that movie here. You did have older movies, like on the 16mm stuff, you could buy at the back of Creepy Magazine and stuff. Remember we did an episode on that, those like condensed 16mm versions of movies? But the novelization was a way you could re-experience it right here. Problem with the novelization, and the word problem is in quotes, they obviously have to be written before the movie is released, so they can be released usually the same week that the movie comes out which means novelizations became famous for subplots that are cut out of films, missing scenes, characters being different. In some cases, the monster being completely different from what you see. For instance, Alien, the original novelization of Alien, H.R. Geiger had not designed the creature yet. So Alan Dean Foster, his description of it is from early pre-production artwork. So he describes the creature in Alien as being wildly different than the creature we ended up seeing. Well, it's cool because in a way you're getting a look into an alternate version of what ended up, you know, hitting the theater. So uh, depending on how close you want it to mirror what you saw in the theater, 
uh, I, I kind of dig the fact that you can get these versions. It's more so with the older ones, not so much now. Back then with the uh, Alan Dean Foster stuff, like I remember the Alien 3 book being wildly oh, that, different. Yeah, because that was based off of the script. I read that mm-hmm. one too. I don't know if this was a regular thing, but this is the only time I noticed it. The Alien 3 novelization, I read the week before it hit theaters. I don't know if that was a regular thing, that the novelization came out before the movie came out, but I remember reading the book, the novelization, whatever, of Alien 3, and then going to see the movie because, and being disappointed because the book was a lot better than the movie, wasn't it? Yeah, the, the book was. I mean, I still enjoyed the movie, and although I read the book like a long time after, well, not a long time, but after I had seen the movie. But like I said, I, I read that the week before the movie, I saw the film. So, it, yeah, it's it's cool. I don't know if um, I, I'd have to look into it to see what the track record is. I would assume they would probably want to get it out around when the movie's coming out as opposed to before the movie comes out. And then sometimes you get a completely different novel than the movie. For instance, Peter Jackson's The Frighteners goes for a lot on eBay, but the first novelization, there's two. Peter Jackson's The Frighteners went through a lot of script revisions. And the first novelization was based off of a script that was 90% unused. So you have almost a totally different film or totally different story that's based on the same premise. And then they corrected that by actually having a novelization written for the film. I think that kind of thing is pretty cool when that happens. Yeah, it's neat because otherwise you would never have any idea what the original version was supposed to be. I remember, uh, I think it was on the DVD where Peter Jackson was talking about how hard he had worked to try to get it to be PG-13 and they still got an R. And he was like, if I would have known we were going to get an R, I would have just went and made it for an R. I would have made an R. Yeah. It's like instead of, uh, you know, kind of dialing it back and then still getting stuck with it. Well, and then sometimes the novelizations go into weird territory it seems like a divergence that you go yeah this wouldn't have worked on film for instance escape from new york i've read the novelization of that and not only does it have the bank robbery deleted scene but it's got almost a completely other character that he's partnered with who has that joe unger's character from escape from new york from that deleted scene he's got a lot more screen time but they go quite deep into the credit system and how America got to this state in the novelization. You might say you don't need any of that. It's still pretty cool to have, though, isn't it? Definitely, because that kind of stuff helps to make the world that all of this takes place in feel more full. So it gives you a greater appreciation so that when you do go back and watch the movie, you know a little bit more of the history and what this whole thing inhabits. And sometimes they go balls out on these, giving you a really different experience. I've brought this up before. The novelization of Predator 2, half of the novelization is told from the perspective of the Predator. So while it's going over all of the same events, you're getting the Predator's view of the people he's hunting, their lingo, such as we are called Umans. And humans are the, or sorry, Umans are the most dangerous prey in the galaxy, and you have to earn the right to hunt Umans. That not just any predator can come here and do that. That kind of stuff really gives a different perspective to the same story. Yeah, and didn't didn't the end 
have the thing with Arnold Schwarzenegger, or was that just uh, like something else entirely that was cut? Oh no, that was a script for Predators. Had the Arnold oh, Schwarzenegger ending, okay. which was stupid. No, okay. the script well, no, for the... Predators had that. Arnold wasn't in the Predator Two novelization, but I'm going by memory. I haven't read it since 1990. Okay, because I, I was thinking that for some reason in my head, I was thinking that the Gary Busey character was supposed to be uh, Arnold oh, Schwarzenegger. Oh, yeah, yeah, it was. It, that was, but in the novelization, it was still Peter Keyes. It was still, okay, okay. Yeah, it, it just was, I thought, really interesting that we're going to show you the events of the movie through the eyes of the Predator. And I thought that was pretty cool. It went way deeper into the Predator culture, the way they thought why they were doing this. Now, some people might go, well, Josh, didn't you bitch about that exact same explaining too much in the Rob Zombie retrospective for the Halloween remake? Yeah, I did. Sometimes giving unnecessary backstory, Rob Zombie, does not help. Sometimes it fleshes things out. It, there, there's a time and a place for it. I guess it, it kind of boils down to just knowing when to put it in there and when to take it out. Well, and then sometimes you've got ones where if you read the novelization, you'd go, what the hell was that? Now, I'm going by memory here. I seem to remember when I read the novelization for Gremlins, it distinctly makes them aliens, alien creatures, which really gives a different, not necessarily better dimension to Gremlins, does it? I had the novelization of Gremlins. Actually, I still have it around here somewhere, probably in a box somewhere. But um, I, I don't believe I ever read the whole thing. I remember I got into it a little bit. I just remember it feeling much darker. It and, had a much more serious tone to it. Yeah, it didn't have the kind of light. I don't want to say lighthearted because it was pretty dark when it went there. I the remember Gremlins the Gremlins eat a science teacher's face. The gr- <laughs> yeah, they, they really went all in and as opposed to just kind of uh you know i mean they did still kill you know they weren't particularly nice people i mean they went completely goofy with gremlins too but with gremlins there still was that just dark naturedness of them and uh i i would have i I should probably try to dig it up, see if I would read it. I, I'd like to look a little bit just, more into I, it. I distinctly remember some kind of an alien connection in there. Maybe my memory's playing tricks on me, but I did Google it, and I found a review that mentions them with alien as aliens again, so I'm like, maybe I'm not crazy on that one. But let's say for the sake of this next argument, they are aliens in the novelization. Does that not totally change how you look at the movie then? No, because it wasn't explained in the like if they said in the movie the mogwai are aliens then it would be different but the thing is as you know things change when you go from one medium to another and a lot of times with the uh adaptations and novelizations they don't have strict rules about what they have to put in there and what they don't have to so they can change stuff on the fly. So that's something where it wasn't necessary to really explain it. And they didn't in the movie. So I'm kind of keeping the two things separate. Well, and then you've got ones like Halloween 3. The novelization tries to fix some of the plot holes. And keep in mind, I love Halloween 3. But it tries to deal with the time zone discrepancies and it goes more into the conspiracy and whatnot to the point where you kind of go, why do I get the feeling that all this stuff was in the movie and just cut? It's possible especially with uh with back then that a lot of this stuff probably was they didn't talk about it on uh the blu-ray at all they 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 went into deep detail about pretty much everything else but they didn't talk about the novelization well the novelization of carpenter's halloween has this whole like pre 
you know, what would be in the movie, a pre-credit sequence of, okay, you know how where they, where they went in the franchise by about six with the Thorn Curse? That's all basically set up in the novelization of the first movie. Hmm. So as weird as that might sound, that Thorn Curse crap didn't come out of nowhere in Michael Myers' history. The novelization dealt with that. Interesting. Because I remember that being kind of off-putting when I saw that. I was like, okay, that's weird, but all right. And then you've got ones like, it also can help flesh out relationships. Like in the novelization of Alien, there's a distinct kind of, you know, they, they kind of got go of that space truckers thing, what you know, whatnot. Mm-hmm. They go a little farther that apparently it's the 70s. Sex is kind of given out pretty freely on, on the Nostromo. Ripley and Lambert have kind of had sex with all of the, the different male crew members and that's actually a plot point when they are getting suspicious of Ash that he hasn't made a move on either of them, nor on Dallas or Parker, that they're kind of like, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're on a long, years-long, long haul. This guy's completely asexual. Something's wrong with that. That adds a new dimension to the character relationships too, I think, doesn't it? Yeah, it does uh, make things a little different. I guess they... Eh, who knows? I mean, they, it could have been cut for time, could have just been something they decided, eh, you know what, let's let's not make them look like whores. You know, I mean, it could have been any number of reasons, you know, space whores, Ripley edition. Well, and I, I, re- I distinctly remember, I don't remember if the if Empire or Jedi's did this, but I did read those novelizations when they were new. I read the novelization of Star Wars, and it's quite different. Just like I said about the creature in Alien. They hadn't designed a lot of the creatures or spaceships yet when Alan Dean Foster wrote the Star Wars novelization. So you get a totally different universe in that than you get when you see the movie. Do you consider that like two separate timelines? Because the novelizations are one timeline and the movies are another. Or do you think that's just sort of an alternate version of what we didn't get for the movie timeline? I'll just chalk it up to an alternate version because there's so many things especially with something like star wars there's the uh, extended universe there's uh, all the the various novelizations and all that stuff that that even stuff that lucas had said okay you know this is canon and this isn't canon and then disney came along and bought the rights and said nothing except for the six movies and clone wars is canon everything else is not canon and so uh, I, I kind of will take Lucas's word over theirs. But in the, but in the then grand Lucas scheme of... constantly was saying this is canon, this is not too. Back when droids and Ewoks first hit the air, he gave an interview to Starlog or Cinema Fantastique or whatever magazine where he said this is out. This is what happens right before episode four. You know, this is what happens before A New Hope. And droids and Ewoks do line up with that. They even reference the owner that they had right before Luke finds them and Boba Fett appears and whatnot. And this is right before a new hope. And he says, these were Canon. Then he goes and makes the prequels and goes, no, no, no. Droids and Ewoks weren't Canon anymore. Is it really Canon? If you can just throw it out that quickly. Well, I think we all know the only thing uh, that's truly star Wars Canon is the Christmas special. It should be at least. (laughs) Hey, it was the first appearance of Boba Fett. But then when it comes to, you brought up expanded universes. Let's talk about that for a minute. Do you think something like the way Paramount handled the Star Trek stuff is the way you should do it or the way you shouldn't? They said was, if it doesn't happen on screen in one of the movies or the TV show, didn't happen. You, have, you can do whatever you want in the novels, do whatever you want in the comic books, 
Those are just essentially fan fiction. Do you think that's the right way to handle Extended Universe or Expanded Universe or not? Well, in a way, it kind of is because it gives the writers all the freedom to be as creative as they want. And then they don't have to really consult with them to say, okay, well, uh, can we do this? Can we not do this? Can we kill this character? Can we not kill this character? But then doesn't it make it meaningless? um, You know what? To be perfectly honest, if it's a good novel, care. Like, you know, if, if I read it and it's good, then I enjoyed it. You know, if it's if it's part of a series and that's the timeline that they decided to go with, then I'm fine with that. You know, it it, it gives alternate perspectives from various things that they wouldn't necessarily do in the regular canon. My big complaint along that lines was always, especially with early Next Generation, and not to go too deep into a Star Trek geek episode, I liked the early Next Generation comics story-wise. You know, everyone knows I liked Next Generation Season 1 and why, but story-wise, they were a lot more daring and creative in the comics than they were on the show. Kind of wanted those comics to be canon. Does that make sense? Eh, makes sense. What about the canon of video games? What about when a movie gets translated to a video game? We'll tie this into our video game episode. You know, usually a video game is difficult to make into a good movie. Why is the exact same thing true the opposite wise, though? Why is it so hard to make a movie into a good video game? Usually, uh, there's actually a very valid reason for this. The studio that is in charge of getting the license will pay a crap ton of money to get the rights to the license and then whatever money they left have left over is what goes into the actual production of the game and the other thing too is that most movies uh, even really big budget giant you know transformer type movies they can crank them out in like a year or two whereas to make a good video game you need a lot of years you need three four sometimes five years to really do some of these things in depth and make them as good as they can or have a giant production team that can code and do all the rendering and all that stuff. So the problem is is that first you get the company that will spend all the money to acquire the rights and then they'll say, okay, we need this to launch with the movie. You have eight months or however long to get this thing done. And so they slapdash, put the whole thing together. It releases and it's it might have a good idea, it might have good graphics, but then it ends up being a buggy mess, or it's just ugly, or it's poorly constructed. The Wolverine movie, or the Wolverine game, actually benefited in a way from, well not in a way, but the, the uh, X-Men Origins Wolverine, the first movie, got delayed over a year. So originally, the movie, or the game was going to launch... And then they're like, okay, well, we got to hold it back for another year plus for the movie to come out. And they spent all that time polishing and adding and making the game better so that by the time the movie came out and they released the game alongside of it, the the game was awesome and the movie was terrible. So that's one of those rare times where the licensed game actually ended up being leagues better than the movie was. What about with a company like LJN who... They weren't the exclusive people that did this, but they are famous for awful licensed games, that they would license a movie and make a terrible game out of it, almost without end, or almost without exception. Why do you think they continued? Why do you think we, as idiotic kids, continued to buy their terrible games knowing that, God, it's it's a licensed title from LJN. It's going to suck. Why do we buy it anyway? 
I will say, at least in the uh, NES days, the reason why we bought it is because we were dumb and young and didn't know any better. So, you know, whenever I saw a video game, I didn't look to see who the publisher was. I didn't see who was involved. I just saw... Oh, neither did I, but I started to notice after a while all the sucky games had that damn rainbow on the bottom. Well, exactly, but that was the thing. But how many did you buy before you really got to the point of where you were like, hey... You know, THQ made this back when THQ used to be terrible. THQ got so much better over the years. But back in the early days when they were doing just the most awful licensed games that were just barely playable, it it was painful. But it took a while, I think, for people to kind of catch on because, you know, at the time I was like, oh, my God, I can, you know, I I just saw Predator and now I can play the game. And then you play it and you're like, what the hell was that? What is this shit? Why why are there all these other things that have nothing to do with the movie? Why in the Rambo game can you spit a Chinese character at him and it turns you into a frog? Exactly. It's, what were you thinking? It's not even remotely close. I just did a uh, shameless promotion time. Uh, I am <laughs> I yes, I'll take that. I've been doing live game streams every so often and uh, the whole thought process behind it was I was going to take a different licensed game, give myself a time frame, and then see if I could beat the game. And just last night, I played through the Super Nintendo version of Bram Stoker's Dracula. It's terrible. It's so I played the Sega Genesis version. I'm assuming it's essentially the same game. Uh, Actually, I think it's different because what happened was... Because I didn't have a Super Nintendo at that time, so I I played that one on Sega. I I believe it's different because um, Sony bought the rights, but they gave the license to different groups to make different versions. So I think that the Super Nintendo and the Sega uh, version are different. I know the Sega CD different is much version, or is much version. I know the I Sega so CD. I'm so keeping that outtake, by the way. <laughs> I'm creating my own, you know, word. The Sega CD one's kind of half FMV, kind of not. It's one of those digitized ones like Mortal Kombat. Yes, it had pre-rendered backgrounds, digitized Horrid characters. Horrid hit detection, by the way. Oh God, the the. The worst is you're supposed to cross this bridge and the... You land uh, right on the damn plank and you still fall through. You still fall through to your death. So you don't know. You're like, where the hell am I supposed to land? It's the worst kind of thing ever. The Super Nintendo version, It you're you're spending most of the time punching doll... Or no, you, you've got... That's- you got a you've got a dagger, and then you uh, talk to Van Helsing, and then he tells you to go pick up a sword, and then you get a sword, and you're slashing at dogs and bats and guys with clubs, and then the bosses are the the dumbest things ever. You have to fight a dragon, and um, who's the 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 guy who played Tom the guy uh, Tom Waits was in. The moot in Bram Stoker's Dracula. Renfield. Renfield. Thank you. Renfield is 30 feet tall and he spits spiders at you. Well, that actually kind of thematically works. The spiders thing. It, yeah, I know. Cause he the, ate the, the spiders bugs. thing thematically is, is okay though. Yeah. But I mean, but in order to get to him, you had to jump over lava pits and uh, <laughs> like, like all this stuff that it's like, Oh, I remember when all of this happened in the movie. <laughs> oh wait, I don't, I don't. You have to fight. Lucy, who is also actually, that's the other thing. The bosses are all 30 feet tall and they all can be beaten by using the same strategy, which is go as far as you can to the left and then just keep hitting them. 
Well, but that that's just bad game design. Oh, it's terrible game design. But then what about when when you've got translating to a different medium like comic books where you have tie-ins where like I I remember when Blade Runner came out. Okay, now keep in mind, we all know the director's cut of Blade Runner and whatnot. None of that had happened. So the comic book was essentially what the director's cut of the movie would be. And I remember the comic book being much fast-paced, much more fast-paced, but at the same time having more scenes in it that allowed it to make more sense. Do you think that kind of gives you like a little bit of a whiplash? Like, wait a minute, the movie's better, but so is the comic book, but they're different. Huh? Eh, you know, it's just uh, two versions of the same thing, really. Well, okay, then then what, what about tie-ins that you might not be required to read, but help help the film if you do? For instance, Titan A.E., the comic book that came out, the three-issue miniseries, wasn't an adaptation of Titan A.E. It was a prequel that showed what happened between the destruction of Earth and the beginning of the movie. Some of those events, which are referenced in the film, you don't need to read it, but it really helps to understand the story if you do. On the other hand, look at Predators. You know that civil war between the Predators that we know and then those bigger, blacker ones? That entire thing has gone over in a four-issue comic book series that Dark Horse, I'm quoting, recommends you read prior to seeing the movie. So now you're telling me I also have to buy the comic book just to know what's going on in the movie? Screw you! I, I don't think that it's... I don't think that it's done like that. I mean, of course it's done in a business sense. Hey, you know, we made this, so if you want to know a little bit more, why don't you buy this? and make it a more full experience. But I think that it helped to expand things, but it wasn't like imperative. You didn't absolutely have to read it or the whole movie would just, you know, not make any sense. It would be garbage. I mean, that would be a problem if it's like if you went in and you're like, oh, wait, I was supposed to read this whole book beforehand. That's when it becomes an issue. Well, I mean, when Dune first came out in theaters in 1984, for people who hadn't read the book, they actually gave you a glossary of all, you know, the Quizak, Sadarak, and, you know, all, Wadib and all that, what all this stuff means. Think that helped or hurt people going into the movie dry, kind of going, wait a minute, why is there an 18-page glossary I have to read before watching a fucking film? I didn't know about that. I knew uh, when I rented it on VHS, it came with this little blue index card. And I think it had my like... VHS still has that. I still have that in my VHS. Yes. Really? That's, oh, that's awesome. I, the um, laser disc might too. But I don't remember it being a whole big thing. I remember it being a select, like maybe a little paragraph and then like 10 words, you know, this means this, this means this. And I kind of thought it was neat because I'm like, oh, you know, they, they really put some work into it because at the time, I don't know what the hell Dune was. <laughs> So, I mean, I've since grown very fond of it, but uh, at, the, at the time, I mean, this was more or less my introduction to Dune. So when I saw that, I was like, oh, they I mean, I knew that it was a novel that was, or series of novels because my sister was my, I have an older sister. She was reading them. But beyond that, I didn't really know anything about them. So I, I just thought that was cool. Let's go back to novelizations for a second. But this also ties into video games and whatnot. What do you think about the almost childish degree of secrecy that they go through for this. For instance, you're a comic book fan. You know who Peter David is, right? Yeah, he actually uh, he emailed me once. It was pretty awesome. I, inter I interviewed him over on Lost in the Static. 
But thanks to me. Yes, thanks to you. Yay! Credit, credit where credit's due. <laughs> but he, he's written a whole ton of novelizations, as well as, you know, original Star Trek novels, Star Wars, X-Files, etc., etc. He ran into this childish need for secrecy when he was asked to do the novelization for Iron Man 2. Now, keep in mind, they were still shooting the movie. We said earlier, usually the novelizations are based off an early version of the script, right? Disney was so terrified about some, you know, the super secret plot twists leaking out. They wouldn't give Peter David, even after signing a non-disclosure agreement, even after his history of not leaking stuff, they would not give him a copy of the script. All they would let him do was he could come into the Disney offices with a notepad and write down things that he, he had to handwrite things that he would want to put into the novelization. And it, it, he, he got to the point where he said, this is ridiculous and turned the job down. Is that not almost a cartoonish level of, no, 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 no spoilers, no spoilers? Well, that's that's for goddamn ridiculous. Yeah, that's Disney going overboard. In a way, I can I can almost understand. I don't I'm not agreeing with them whatsoever. But what happened recently with Tarantino, I think it was Michael Madsen came out and was was talking about uh, the movie that they were involved in and, and all that. And, Are you talking about the Hateful Eight incident? Yeah, the Hateful Eight incident and uh, all that stuff came out. So it's when you've got people involved that still will go out there and just openly talk about certain things that are still in negotiations. Eh, I can see, but I do think to a certain degree that something like that is stupid. Shouldn't the writer have access to the fucking story? Exactly. That's what I'm saying. That's not letting a fan or or an actor or somebody like in on something that they're not supposed to know. This is the guy who's going to be writing the book that goes along with your product, who is he's not a nobody. He, you know, he also not, has a history of not having betrayed you. Yeah, he's not Joey the intern. He's freaking Peter David, for crying out loud. Well, do you think what the X-Files movie did was then overkill? For the X-Files Fight the Future movie, what was that, 96? Late 90s. Maybe? Well, whatever whatever the year that was, no one outside of the director and the producer ever saw a full script. The scripts were printed on special paper that could not be photocopied, special glossy paper that not only could you not photocopy it, but if you took a photograph of it, it would just come out as a white blur, and no actor was given pages that they were not involved in. So even David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson never saw the full script because they were so terrified that some spoiler would get out. I mean, they went to almost cloak and dagger CIA levels to protect a goddamn movie script. Is that not taking it a lot too far? Well, I look at it from this perspective. It's the X-Files, and I think that they were trying to play up that angle with this making it this secrecy so by making it such a oh well we can't you know get this out in the paper you can't take pictures of it and this that and the other thing then that really kind of adds to the mysticism and the the whole show is about that's so, not why they did it they did no, it because I, they didn't want plot spoilers leaking to the still in its infancy internet but I also think that that was the ulterior motive, was that they were doing it as a combination of that. Uh, I don't know. I do think that, in general, 
there is too much information out there. Like right now with the new uh, Star Wars that are being filmed, I don't want to know anything about it. And in order to not know anything about it, I have to not talk to I, I have to basically not go on the Internet for the next couple of years because I would like to be I want to be the intern that goes up to Harrison Ford right before shooting and goes break a leg. <laughs> Look, he's an old guy. When they kind of mislabel the media on you, the the alternate media for the movie. For instance, did you ever see the quote novelization of Blade Runner or Planet of the Apes? No. Well, the novelizations of those, and that's what they're called. For instance, the Planet of the Apes one has Charlton Heston on the cover. It's actually the original Pierre Boulle novel where they have jetpacks and laser guns. Blade Runner novelization, it's got the poster on the cover with Harrison Ford and Sean Young on it. It's actually Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, which is a vastly different story than the movie. Do you think that's mis-selling your audience a little bit there when you just slap the poster or the movie star on the original on the original product? Or do you think if they're saying this is the novelization of Blade Runner, shouldn't it actually have been a novelization of the movie version of Blade Runner and not do Android's Dream? Yeah, that is a little shifty because you're going to get people that are going to buy that and then they're going to be like, what the hell is this? Because especially with something like Durandrid's uh, Dream of Electric Sheep or uh, We Can Re- Remember It For You Wholesale, there are dramatic differences between the original book version. I, I have a novelization of The Running Man that's got Arnold on the cover. If you've ever read The Running Man, you know eh, there's barely the story is barely anything to do with the movie. <laughs> yeah, I think the only one of the closest book to movie variations, with the exception of the very, very, very end uh, was the mist. I thought that they did. Durabont did an amazing job of Stephen King thing. thought that too, because Stephen King loved the new ending. Oh, well, yeah, that was the thing. He even he's because the, the, in the book, the ending spoiler alert, it, it, isn't it? Isn't it rather? It, amb- it, it's very it's ambiguous. ambiguous. They kind of drive off into the into the night and they have no idea. Whereas in the end of the movie, you know, it's the, the major down ending, which I know a lot of people hated. I thought that ending and I, I'm, I mean this in the best possible way, was Rod Serling fighting back from the grave. That was such a You tell me gut- that's not a Rod Serling ending. Oh, that's a Rod Serling ending big time. It's such a gut punch where you're just like, oh, no. You also have ones where when you're changing from one medium to another, now this isn't necessarily changing from one medium, but what do you think about merchandising? Do you think the merchandising hurts? For instance... Like Men in Black. Let's just take the Men in Black movies, okay? Now, obviously, that's based off a comic book, so I'm not going to talk about the comics. But what about, like, the Men in Black cartoon or the Blues Brothers cartoon? Do you think that type of changing from one medium to another, even though we've already technically done movie to TV, TV to movie, do you think that helps the brand or the movie or not? Eh, I don't don't think it helps it, but I don't think it hurts it. I think that... uh... When a lot of times when it goes from comic book to T or comic book to movie to cartoon, most of the time the cartoon that ends up not particularly good. Uh, I don't remember the 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 Men in Black cartoon being anywhere nearly as good as the movie or the comic book. But even the movie and the comic book are fairly different. Oh, the comic book 
the men in black are not only villains, they are ciphers for essentially fascism. Yeah, they were not good guys. They were guys. not good guys. Yeah, it was one of the, because I loved a lot of Dark Horse books. I was all in with their world's greatest universe with like X and Ghost and all that. But uh, I didn't read a well, ton of Men in Black wasn't a Dark stuff. Horse comic, so. Men in, Men in Black wasn't a Dark Horse comic? No. What was it? Men in Black was Malibu. It was Malibu. Yeah. Oh, well, on the same token, I liked I liked Malibu for the Ultraverse. And uh, I actually have a crap ton of Ultraverse books. And man, did it take me a long time to get over Marvel, completely screwing them into the grave. But that's a whole that's other, a whole other one. Worms. But um, then, so yeah, I, I have no, you know, all right. I thought I could have sworn it was Dark Horse. Wow two different continuities where you've got a book series, for example, and then you've got the movie series, which do not, which are both being published or released simultaneously, but they don't follow one another. Like the dirty Harry books or the Rambo books. Rambo kept having books made that were nothing to do with the movies that were being made. The Harry Callahan books were kept being printed had nothing to do outside of character names with the with the Dirty Harry movies. You had the, the Dexter books. They are so night and day different from the Dexter TV series that they're barely recognizable as the source material. The book series and the movie series or TV series are so vastly different. I kind of dig it because that way you can have two things and have two separate experiences. You can read the books and then watch the TV shows and feel that you're getting that world, but you're getting two different, you know, two, uh, I guess, parallel universes, so to speak. There are a lot of times where you'll read the book and then you see the adaptation of it and they're, oh, I like that, but they, they, they did this differently or they did this differently. Whereas these are so dramatically different that it becomes its own thing. So then you're no longer really comparing the two. Do you think it matters which one you encounter first? Like, if you read Darkly Dreaming Dexter before you saw the TV series, the TV series would suck. Now, on the other hand, me having seen the TV series first, I think the novels suck because I don't like what they did to characters I grew to like on the TV show. Do you think it matters which alternate timeline, since that's what we're using, you encounter first? I think so, because it does really impact how you see and perceive these characters. I know uh, I had been reading the Charlene Harris, uh, Suki Stackhouse books, the Dead Until Dark and Club Dead and all them. Loved them. I thought they were great. And when uh, they announced that they were doing True Blood, they were doing the adaptation. I was like, okay, cool. You know, they're going to do an adaptation of it. And then I saw True Blood and True Blood, I thought was absolute pure garbage. I hated the show. I watched the first two episodes and gave up. Yeah, we watched, uh, me and my wife watched the first episode and we're like, all right, you know what? It was the pilot. A lot of times the pilot, you know, they're kind of rusty, getting things going. And then we watched the first one after that. And normally with a lot of shows where we're interested in, we'll give them three. It's like, if you're not hooking us by the third episode, we're out. I even did that with Enterprise. They got, they got the pilot plus two before they lost me. Enterprise, I think I, I got about to the second season. I was too busy at the time, and I was like, look, I just, you know, I had to excise some stuff. So I was like, all right, Enterprise unfortunately loses. With that, I, we made it through uh, the halfway of, of episode two, and I kind of looked at her and was like, 
I don't give a shit about any of these people. And so we just cut our losses. And the next thing you know, it becomes this huge thing. And I'm like, oh, if you read the books, you would hate the show. So I think that's kind of the thing. But the books and the show were pretty different. I mean, the books were kind of weird, cool, mystery vampire novels. And the show was vampire porn, for, for lack of a better description. Well, so in, in your case, just like mine with Dexter, it definitely mattered what you encountered first. Because let's say you encountered True Blood, the TV show, first. Would you have then been enticed to go read the books, or would you still have had the same, this sucks, reaction? I probably would have been turned off and would have not read the books, because I I thought the show was so bad. Even trying to watch it and not compare it to the show or to the books i think if i would have saw it i would have just been like oh this is terrible and then i would have been never intrigued enough to go out and read the books because i would have been like oh is this this is what this is based off of uh garbage i'm not gonna read this what about when you pile on to the point of redundancy for instance you had street fighter the video game then you had street fighter the movie and then instead of just re-releasing the video game which they'd already done a billion times they actually made a specific video game based on the movie, based on the video game. So you've got Street Fighter, the movie, the game. Does that not just become redundant at that point? It does become redundant and really silly, but I do think that it was unique enough in the sense where they at least digitized the characters. And The game, that game was a Mortal Kombat ripoff. Didn't even play I mean, like you... Street Fighter anymore. Well, that was the thing, because you can't play that kind of game the street, like Street Fighter was. So, of course, it had to become feeling more like Mortal Kombat because the entire aesthetic has changed because it's digitized characters instead of the, uh, you know, the, the, the drawn sprite characters they had before. It's a whole different thing. So uh, I don't know. I, I think that it's silly and very redundant, but I understand where they came from because it's like, hey, now we have the possibility of having two Street Fighters because they could have the Street Fighter series that's, uh, you know, the, well, Street Fighter 2, which is pretty much what they based all of them off of after that because Street Fighter 1 is completely different. And well, then they could have, ass. yeah, the Street Fighter I, 1. I've is played that game at the fair a couple of times. That game not is good. Just not fun. No, it's it's not good. It's It's amazing that one of the best games ever came from such a mediocre first outing. Then they made the Street Fighter, the movie, the game, where they could sell it off of the back of, well, you know, now you can play as Jean-Claude Van Damme and uh, and do it that way. And Raul Julia. And, um, oh, yeah. Well, if I want to play as Jean-Claude Van Damme, I'll just look at the source code for Mortal Kombat's Johnny Cage. What about when you've got something like Battleship? We have a movie. Ba we have a video game based on a movie based on a board game. Um, again, is that redundant or is that just taking the merchandising to a ridiculous level. That's, holy shit, we just paid $300 million to make a movie that's based off of a board game that has no plot whatsoever. And, and what it does have is a Transformers ripoff. Oh, God. It has, it's a Transformers ripoff and probably the dumbest aliens in the history of cinema. Where they say whatever this other medium is, is the official sequel, prequel, in continuity. I don't mean like the Predators thing where they want you to read the comic book before that. As bad as the Aliens Colonial Marines game is, 20th Century Fox is on record. This is what happens between Aliens and Alien 3. Do you think that harms 
the movie franchise when when the video game is officially part of the continuity? I don't fault 20th Century Fox on that one. I fault Gearbox because 20th Century Fox was like, okay, we're going to put this game, this is the story that we want to tell. But the story that they told was asinine. The story that they told for what happens between those two movies sucks ass. And it totally destroys what little emotional impact Hicks' death in Alien 3 had. But the thing is, you only know the story that came out with what they did. They could have dramatically changed it just like they did with every other element of the game. And not Gearbox, whatever sub sector time, time they, gate was the was the actual time gate was the yeah that they they um who they formed it out to do and then they did a terrible job hackneyed the whole thing together released it late and then it ended up just being this garbled mess put a real bad black check mark on an otherwise good company i, I think that it was a a terrible business decision that somebody up the food chain made and had that game came out under a competent label I think that you'd probably be singing a different tune. I what think about, that the now, now obviously we haven't played it because it's not out yet. But there, what about when the video game, which they say is officially part of continuity, contradicts established continuity, like Alien Isolation? They've outright said this is continuity. This is what happens between Alien and Aliens. Yet it stars Ripley's daughter, who's now a colonial marine, where she never was before, and it gives her a completely different backstory than what we saw Paul Reiser give her in Aliens. We'll have to see. I have, I've only seen all the making ofs and trailers and whatnot, but just in general, that one kind of ticked me off, like the Colony Marines one. I couldn't stand what they did. And to, to me, it kind of negated Hicks' death and that meaning anything by, by what Aliens Colonial Marines does to his character. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty excited. Uh, that's something where, again, I'm, I'm willing to... I'm willing to give it a pass if it's really good. Well, now, what are your final thoughts then on... Obviously, we all know usually when another medium is made into a movie, it does not turn out so hot. What are your final thoughts on when a movie is brought to another medium? Is it more successful than it's not usually, or do you think it is literally just title dependent? It's tough because there are so many properties that get adapted that it's, it's tough to say what the percentage of hits and misses are. Uh, I know some of them that I've read and played and had board games of or whatever, I thought they were good. And then other ones were just complete messes. So um, as far as I know, I would say it's probably a better success rate, novelizations and other adaptations going from the one property to that, as opposed to a novelization being turned into a movie or a movie being turned into a video game. I I tend to think it's more of a success, but you have to put the word success in quotes. Like we talked about, sometimes, you know, you'll get all these deleted scenes and whatnot, or in the case of like the Frighteners and that, a totally different story with the same characters. And I think that stuff is cool. But a lot of the times it is bland. It's boring. It, It doesn't add anything to the mythos from the movie. And I get it. Like I pointed out at the beginning of the show, the reason you had novelizations at that point was because you couldn't see the movie again and it was another way to experience it. So then when you look back at it now, you go, 
This is just a bland, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened checklist of what happened in the movie in some cases. So it, it all depends on whether you have a good writer or not. I honestly can't particularly see. I love Peter David, so do not think I'm insulting him at all with what I'm about to say, Cecil. He wrote the novelization of Transformers Dark of the Moon and After Earth. I seriously don't know how he could have made those stories good. I don't think even Peter David could make those good. Well, with Transformers, probably paid off the mortgage with his house. And with After Earth, uh, have, you, have you seen? I've seen the movie. I've not read the novelization. I've not read the novelizations for either of these. That's why I'm bringing up. I don't see how even Peter David could save these stories. Well, the thing with After Earth, I actually thought that the concept was very good. I thought that there was a lot of potential there. The problem was that Jaden Smith was a horrendous actor and 80% of the film was him alone. And he is not a strong enough actor. 80% of the film was him alone making poop, like making I have to poop faces. Yeah, he, he was just frowning at the camera and then pouting at the camera and it was it was terrible like that was his range of acting the thing that made a shame because I, I thought that like when he was interacting with will smith i was like all right will smith is is really you know given a performance you know he's he's being a, a a just a rough military guy he's he he's trying to be he's not being a dick to his son he's being a commander to his kid and his kid couldn't convey that he yeah you know he just was angry and he frowned at the camera i, I know it's terrible I know it's not from this movie, but I don't want your life. Yeah, I, I think that, um, I don't know. That's one where I would really like to see Peter David's take on it, because I'm sure it's a hell of a lot better than the movie. Sometimes I think a really good writer can can make a weak script into a decent novel. On the other hand, if you don't have anything to work with, you're not still not going to come up with a decent product. You know what I mean? I don't know, man. There's some novelists out there that have really spun gold out of shit. Harlan Ellison used to call like, you know, Xena novels and uh, X-Files novels and Star Trek novels. He said, those aren't writing. Those are mildly creative typing. <laughs> he is a wonderful horse's ass. Well, I thought that was me. No, you're the shrieking harpy. Shrieking harpy. Sorry, I always get that confused. Where can people find Cecil T if they wish to contact the robot? You can find me on the SOL at goodbadflix.com as well as geekjuicemedia.com. You can find me, 1201beyond.com. It's a good site. Contact the show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. I wonder, if they had made a novelization of this, would they actually make you interesting? I'd still be boring.
1201 Beyond production. Visit 1201beyond.com for more great shows.